Welcome, everyone, to the Revolution 250 podcast. I'm Bob Allison. I chair the Rev 250 Advisory Group, teach history at Suffolk University. And Rev 250 is a collaboration among groups in Massachusetts looking at ways to commemorate the beginnings of the American Revolution. And our guest today is Jeffrey Rosen. Jeff Rosen is the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to have you. And the National Constitution Center is a great place. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about it. Absolutely. So before all of our programs, I recite the National Constitution Center's mission statement, which is so great. inspiring that I'll do that now. Here we go. Okay, very good. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the U.S. Constitution among the American people on a nonpartisan basis. And that last uh, resonant phrase is so important because it is urgently necessary for there, there to be at least one place in these polarized times that is nonpartisan and that brings together citizens and scholars of all perspectives, liberal and conservative and everything in between, to explore areas of agreement and disagreement about the U.S. Mm -hmm. Constitution. Um, the Constitution Center was founded during the bicentennial of the Constitution. It was indeed chartered by Congress, but it's a private nonprofit that receives little government funding. Um, in, in, in a sense, we, we have this grand building on Independence Mall across from mm -hmm. Independence Hall, the most inspiring constitutional land in, in America. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, with a government charter, but without government support. I don't know if that's the best or worst of all worlds, but but the Constitution Center itself is definitely the best of all worlds. It's a kind of constitutional heaven, as, as we'd like to say. Right, right now, the, the chairs of the Constitution Center are Justices Neil Gorsuch and Stephen Breyer. They both joined together to signal their commitment to nonpartisan constitutional education. Um, and on all of our programs and podcasts and on the amazing platform that we've created called the Interactive Constitution. Mm -hmm. We bring together liberals and conservatives mm -hmm. uh, for constitutional education and debate. We, we have become um, America's leading platform for nonpartisan constitutional education. And I'll, I'll tell you about some of the really exciting things that listeners can find on the website when mm -hmm. they visit us. I hope they will. So the, the, the core of the educational offerings is called the Interactive Constitution. And we launched in 2015. Um, it's now among the most Googled constitutions in the world. It's received more than uh, 70 million hits since we launched in 2015. And when you go there, you can click on any clause of the constitution, the first amendment or the second amendment mm -hmm. or anything you like. And you'll find leading liberal and conservative scholars exploring areas of agreement and disagreement with a thousand words about what they agree the provision means mm -hmm. and then separate statements about what they disagree right. with. And it's so inspiring to see how much agreement there really is. And, and it's like a Supreme Court majority opinion. And in these polarized times, citizens can, can read this material and be completely confident that it represents consensus history. Right. Now, building on that great platform, we've launched an amazing series of Constitution 101 classes mm -hmm. that uh, citizens can take as lifelong learners. And we're um, doing a high school version, which is now online and has materials for teachers. And we've just launched a great collaboration with Khan Academy, which is the leading online course provider, to create their first civics class. And mm -hmm. we're going to have the Khan National Constitution Center, Khan, Khan 101 class, there's a lot of cons in there, that, yes. will, that will launch next year. And it's just going to be this amazing free resource for anyone to learn civics. And in particular, we're really expecting it'll reach 
hundreds of thousands of, of high school students across America. Um, and then, then finally online, there's just a series of public programs, mm -hmm. a podcast called We the People I host every week, town mm -hmm. hall programs. And these are all really wonderful discussions about historic and current constitutional issues in the news. Again, they bring together liberal and conservative mm -hmm. scholars. And it's just thrilling to be able to learn from great thoughtful uh, minds about the Constitution. So that's, really that's, that's all this wonderful online uh, material. And then uh, I'll just end this um, tour of the, the resources of the Constitution Center by returning to our inspiring headquarters in Philadelphia, which mm -hmm. I hope visitors will visit if they can. Yes. It's, it's right on Independence Mall, this sort of shining, mm -hmm. um, uh, I, 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 I use the word temple because I can't think of a better one. It's a temple of, of, to the Constitution. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a superb learning center that has rare copies of the Constitution, yes. the, the original copy of the Bill of Rights, James Wilson's first handwritten notes right. of the Constitution, statues of the framers, live yeah. theater that yeah. inspire visitors, um, new exhibits on the Civil yeah. War and Reconstruction, a new exhibit we're opening in September on the First Amendment, and a great way for learners of all ages to learn about the Constitution. So that's the National Constitution Center, and it's such an honor to be part of it. It really is. And, and you say it's a temple, but I want to make it clear, it's really not a, a static shrine. It's an exciting place where you are participating in this, really, discussion that's been going on for several hundred years now about self-government and all, which is really, it's an inspiring place in all the right ways. Absolutely right. You're so right to emphasize the fact that it's an opportunity to engage with living debates about the meaning of the yeah. Constitution, its relevance to contemporary life, and its centrality in preserving the Republic. The, the founders thought that without constitutional education, uh, citizens would be unable to muster the thoughtful deliberation and willingness to listen to different points of view that was necessary if the Republic were to survive. And when George Washington uh, stepped down, he expressed hope that Congress would create a national university for yeah. people from around the country to come and learn about civics. Now, Congress didn't because there were concerns about federalism and, and mm -hmm. um, were, were not in favor of centralized, publicly funded educational mm -hmm. initiatives in America. But the Constitution Center aspires to be that third place that mm -hmm. fulfills Washington's vision on a voluntary basis. And you can do that by visiting us online or in person. Yeah, at Constitution Center. Dot org exactly right the website and you know you recently just not to we want to get to the pursuits of happiness but first you just did a wonderful program at the constitution center where you asked scholars left right and libertarian about how they would amend the constitution if they were to rewrite it today and it was really interesting the consensus they had about you know, the what is essential to preserve in the system as well as some things i think it was more tweaks than hey let's start over uh which was really an interesting commentary i think on the framework that was set up in 1787. it was fascinating i'm so glad you you saw that exciting project and it, it started when we convened those scholars as you say conservative liberal and libertarian to draft a constitution from scratch in a state mm -hmm. of nature a state of zoom or whatever mm -hmm. it was and they they each had their separate discussions. And when they came back, we were surprised that there were there were areas of overlap that we hadn't expected. In particular, several of them were open to term limits for Supreme Court justices and even to amending the Electoral College. Yeah. So with that in mind, we, we brought them all together for a virtual convention. 
And I have to say, I listened in and it just blew me away how, how high um, level the discussions were. I felt like I were listening to modern frameworks because they yeah. were so um, thoughtful, deeply learned in law and history and willing to take the long view, not to get caught up on partisan advantage in the short term, but to think about structural issues in the long term. So in the space of just about three meetings on Zoom, they were able to agree on five constitutional amendments. And here's where the subject of the amendments. First, 18-year term limits for justices. Second, uh, eliminating the natural-born citizenship requirement for president. Third, making it a little easier to amend the Constitution. Fourth, making it a little harder to impeach the president in the Senate, but easier, so, sorry, harder to impeach in the House, but easier to convict in the Senate uh, to avoid partisan impeachments, but to mm -hmm. make impeachment meaningful. And finally, and interestingly, to resurrect the legislative veto. That was the mechanism Congress had from 1980 until the Supreme Court, for, sorry, from the 30s until the Supreme Court struck yeah. down in the Chada case in, in 80, um, basically to repudiate presidential actions by majority vote. And all of our scholars thought that uh, empowering Congress to assert its prerogatives and to mm -hmm. executive orders that it disagreed with by majority vote would reinstate the balance of powers that's gotten out of whack. So th those were the amendments. They were good government amendments generally. Mm -hmm. They had more to do with structures than about rights. Um, right. But I think it's a marvelous reminder that in these polarized times, there are there's surprising agreement about the first mm -hmm. principles, in particular, the first principles of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And as America's 250 right. approaches, and you are doing such important work to in Massachusetts to focus us on that, the Constitution Center wants to put those ideals mm -hmm. of the Declaration and the Constitution front and center. Great, thanks. So that brings us then to the pursuit of happiness, which is um, another thing we're focusing on. The, the, you know, that fundamental right that the Declaration says all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with these certain inalienable rights among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and what that means. So can you tell us a bit about um, the Constitution Center and how you got started on studying happiness? I should tell you a couple of years ago, I was invited to come to Armenia. Jack Rakov and I went to a number of different colleges in Armenia, and there's one that focuses every year on a found on a great document, and this year was the Declaration. And the students were really in, interested to hear that in America, people are guaranteed happiness. And we had to disabuse them of that. Um, but it is something else. It's really a profound idea, the pursuits of happy, pursuit of happiness and what it means. It is indeed. I'm so excited to tell you about it because I, I have a new book coming out on Grace. this topic. It's coming out in February and it's called The Pursuit of Happiness, How Classical Writers on Virtue Inspired the Lives of the Founders oh. and Defined America. And during the COVID quarantine, I set out to rediscover what the founders had in mind when they talked about the pursuit of happiness. And I, what I learned came as a revelation. I used mm -hmm. as my reading list, uh, a list that Thomas Jefferson would send out to kids who were going to law school who wrote to him when he was old. And he would always send back a quotation, first of all, from Cicero's Tusculan Disputations, saying, uh, the, the happy man is he who is tranquil in his mind, who's not suffering from undue elation or undue despondency. He is the wise man of whom we request. He is the happy man. So mm -hmm. I was intrigued by the Cicero quotation, and, and I decided to read more of the classical moral literature that inspired mm -hmm. Jefferson. Now, I have had a wonderful liberal arts education. I've studied uh, English literature and philosophy and history and politics. 
But for all my wonderful teachers and at wonderful universities, I'd never read the the moral philosophy that it was mm. at the core of, of the original understanding of the history yeah. of ethics. So I, I looked at Thomas Jefferson's reading list to Robert Skipwith, and in the section on natural religion, which is what he kind of surprisingly calls his, his moral philosophy section, he has Cicero's Tusculan Disputations, Seneca's Essays, Marcus Aurelius, um, Epictetus. These are all, of course, classical right. uh, Stoic writers. And then he has a series of the Enlightenment writers, right. uh, Locke's Essay Concerning Human Understanding, Francis Hutcheson, mm -hmm. um, and uh, the Scottish Enlightenment right. folks, Keynes. Um, what, I read these works and was very struck that almost all of them contain the phrase, the pursuit of happiness with, with the help of word searches, yeah. I, I could discover mm -hmm. it. And then what I learned was that they had in mind uh, the classical understanding of happiness right. which was not feeling good, but being good. It was right. virtue, not pleasure. And in particular, they had a distinctive understanding of how to pursue virtue by using your powers of reason to temper or moderate your unreasonable passions like envy, jealousy, anger, mm -hmm. and fear. And this is the way they thought that we could achieve the calm tranquility that was necessary to achieve eudaimonia or happiness. Aristotle famously defined happiness as an activity of the soul in conformity with excellence or virtue. But because virtue isn't self-defining, I needed to read these texts mm -hmm. to understand it. And, of, and the most concrete uh, example of it is Ben Franklin's famous 13 virtue right. project where he right. decides to achieve moral perfection right. and makes a list of 13 virtues, temperance, sincerity, prudence, mm. and so forth. Yes. Tries to put little X's next to his um, self to, when he's right. fallen short every night, finds it daunting and gives up the project, but thinks he's a better man for having tried. Right. What so struck me, and, and this will bring all this uh, uh, home, Franklin also chooses as the motto for his virtue project a, a passage from Cicero's Tusculan Disputations, this book I'd never heard of right. before, and and um, uses this as his touchstone. So having read all these wonderful books during COVID, um, I, I developed an unusual practice during the COVID year. I'd wake up in the morning, watch the sunrise, and then take notes on the morning reading, and then write a brief, um, basically a sonnet to sum mm. up and it was kind of unusual to say the least until I found a bunch of folks in the founding era from Hamilton to John Quincy Adams to the great poet Phyllis Wheatley would do the same thing. They'd read the classical literature and write these sonnets on virtue. So there's something very inspiring about the text. I did that and then I set out to write the book. And what the book does, there are 12 chapters for each of Franklin's 12 virtues. He, he we left out uh, chastity, which he was the one he had the most trouble with. Yes. And each, each um Chapter focuses on a different founder and their efforts to live up to the virtue in question. And it's so striking how frequently they talked about their efforts to master their unreasonable passions, basically mm -hmm. to achieve self-mastery, self-control, to improve their character, because that's mm -hmm. really what the classical definition meant, a lifelong devotion to, to the habits and temper of mind that's necessary for character improvement. And of course, they fell short in so many ways, right. which is as we all do, they were human, um, most notoriously and most importantly uh, about slavery, um, mm -hmm. which they found impossible to reconcile with the ideals of the Declaration. But what's so striking is that the framers recognized this hypocrisy. Patrick Henry said, is it not amazing that I, who myself 
you know, believe that slavery violates the declaration, I myself own slaves, I will not attempt to justify it or even try. It is because of the avarice that makes it impossible for me to do with the inconvenience of, mm -hmm. of living otherwise. He basically confessed that he thought it was immoral, but didn't want to give up a lifestyle that yeah. the system of enslavement made possible. And, and, and using that word avarice, which is, of course, a classical vice, right. shows that he thought he was unable to practice the self-mastery uh, and virtue that would have allowed him to forgive it. So, so this is just one important example of the, the many ways in which they self-consciously uh, talked all the time about uh, their psychological struggles, because they are mm -hmm. ultimately psychological struggles, to be good people. Um, the one, one of the many things that impressed me and changed the way I thought about the founders from this exciting project was that for all their failings, there's one virtue that many of them continued to practice into their old age, and that was industry. They, mm -hmm. they were incredibly industrious. They were. And the beautiful image of, of uh, Adams and Jefferson in their old age, writing those letters, trading tips about books on virtue, and Adams gets all excited when he learns that Pythagoras, who had really come up with the reason-passion distinction, had traveled among the ancient Indian authorities and been inspired by the Hindu Vedas, uh, legendarily. Um, and he saw connections between the wisdom literature of the East, like the Bhagavad Gita and the uh, Stoic wisdom, and Jefferson declaring himself to be an Epicurean uh, mm -hmm. in his old age, um, by which he means not pleasure-seeking, but the contraction of desire so that you can lead a rational life. It, it's just really moving to see how until the end, all of them continued to try to learn and grow and, and write and read. And my book ends with an, uh, just reflecting about how there are many challenges that social media poses to the founder's mm -hmm. conception of the pursuit of happiness. In particular, the temptations we all have to browse rather than read and to right. engage in posts based on passion, which travel further and faster than those based on reason. But at the same time, we have in our pockets, on our iPhones, access to all the books of the world. It's so yeah. thrilling that I was able to write this book. I could read John Adams' actual copies of Joseph Priestley mm -hmm. in the Massachusetts Historical Society with his marginalia in the margins, or just the basically free copies of, of all these great works that are free and online. So we have access to vast light that the framers could only dream of. All we need is the self-discipline to read it. And, and I end with an exhortation uh, about the pleasures of reading. So that's right. the point of happiness. And uh, I can't wait to share it with you when it comes out. I can't wait to read it. We're talking with Jeff Rosen, who is the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. And we're talking about his new book, Pursuit of Happiness. I, I'm always struck by that that we have on our phone and on a, a tablet, all of these tremendous resources. And we actually spend much of our time just scrolling through Twitter and other things, uh, these distractions. I, I'm always reminded of Thoreau when he walks on Cape Cod and going up to the lighthouse and seeing this wonderful illumination and then saying, there's the lightkeeper reading the newspaper by it. He said, shouldn't he be reading something else? Shouldn't he be reading Cicero or um, Francis Hutchison or someone else rather than you know, the day's news, it's, uh, again, what you've been saying really makes me think that on the one hand, we think of the framers, the founders living in this very different world, but you've just made it clear, it's a world easily accessible to us. That is, we can recover this mental world they inhabited and the issues they saw as troubling still trouble us. And 
the compromises they made, we still can see these. So it's not really that distant. And I know the National Constitution Center makes it clear that it's really vital that we understand this world because it really much is our world. And uh, that's really, uh, so I look forward to reading your book on the pursuit of happiness. So it is really um, one of those real puzzles, but it's a puzzle we can solve. And they're creating this not simply for their time, but really it's a mark for um, human society. It's the human condition they're really commenting on. You're so right. You put it so well when you say we, we have an opportunity to carry on their um, the, the, the conversation they started. And, and for them, pursuing happiness by improving our character, by achieving self-discipline, by being our best self and serving others is not only a right, it's a duty, it's a responsibility. Mm -hmm. And they believe that the Republic is going to collapse if we don't do it. And at the end of their lives, many of them are uncertain about whether or not we, the people, right. their, their successors, will succeed or not. They, they have different views on this. Uh, uh, Washington is despairing about faction. Adams yeah. has always had a dark view of human nature and yeah. thought that only force and separation of powers could save us. Um, only Madison among the founders is moderately uh, optimistic, I think because he expected less of, of government to begin yeah. with and really believed that compromise and deliberation were crucial. But, but they thought it was up to us. And, 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 and far from being a remote uh, exercise in antiquarianism, I felt like I was traveling into the minds of the founders yeah. and yeah. Their, their concerns, as you say, are, are our concerns. And it's, and it's just so elevating to accept the responsibility to be our best self every moment of the day. You know, that's the, the real, uh, the, the really arduous but inspiring yeah. part of their challenge is that uh, this is this is not just something for uh, holidays. This is something you have to think about every hour. Am I using the time productively? Am I mm -hmm. am I um, mastering myself, right. my learning? And yeah. and of course we'll we'll fall short. But once you have this new framework, I, I found. Well, I certainly, you know, have been getting up earlier ever since yeah. this because you, you feel like you're being a, a, a slacker if you're you're mm -hmm. not up at the sunrise. And it's yeah. it's. Uh, of course, this is the wisdom that has inspired people for thousands of years. It's uh, it comes in all traditions, both both the Greek and Roman philosophy, but it's it's central mm -hmm. to, the, to to Christianity and to Judaism and to mm -hmm. all the Western traditions. Um, but 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 the founders show it can be imbibed in a non-sectarian way. It's, it's not, uh, you, you can approach it in any right. sort of uh, way that you like, but it's, when I, I, I should also say when I was in college in the 1980s, I remember yearning for this kind of guidance. I, I was studying mm -hmm. the Puritans. Um, mm -hmm. I was convinced by the rigors of Puritan mm -hmm. uh, theology. Um, this is, this is at, at Harvard, sort of a, yes. a focus of, of the study of Puritanism mm -hmm. in the New England mind. Mm -hmm. but, I, but I wondered if, if, uh, virtue or basically lessons about how to lead a good life could be achieved by reason rather than revelation. Interesting, but, yeah. And and what I didn't realize, because the answer was hiding in plain sight, was this is exactly the question the the moral philosophers had set out to um, examine. Um, right. And this used to be central to the curriculum, not only of Harvard, and there's a wonderful book by the historian Daniel Walker Howe yeah. about moral philosophy at Harvard, in the 19, but, but to um, American uh, right. High schools uh, from from the nineteenth century through the nineteen fifties. I talk in 
my book about how Frederick Douglass and, and Abraham Lincoln get this wisdom from McGuffey readers or Murphy's right. English readers, which select right. all this great moral philosophy. Yeah. My, my own uh, mom got it in uh, New York City public schools up through the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And it, it just kind of fell out of the curriculum. And the question mm -hmm. is why in the 1960s? It's a you know tough question as we, trend, as we move from yes. a world where happiness is seen as as, as virtue to one where it's seen as seeking pleasure but, right, it has to yeah. do with the me, the me decade and the, and the, yeah, uh, yeah, the yeah. transformation of uh, expectations about, about happiness that, that happened over the course of the sixties and seventies. But it's such a I mean, it, it kind of, I, I found it very striking as, as you can tell that for all the great reading and marvelous teachers I had, I, I just never encountered this uh, wonderful moral philosophy because it had fallen out of the curriculum. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And, and, and I was just thinking, you know, Franklin's, uh, again, we can go back to Franklin and his very much his self-help book with his virtues, but then the morning question, what good shall I do today? And then the evening, what good have I done today? He got from Cotton Mather and Mather's essays to do good, which really made it, had an impact on Franklin, a profound impact on Franklin. And Franklin does the work, you say, he secularizes that and makes it into a... Um, an achievement you're doing without the constraints of the Puritan ministry. And uh, I was also just thinking as you were talking about what Franklin said to Elizabeth Willing Powell during the deliberations at the convention, is it a republic or is it a monarchy? And his answer, it's a republic if you can keep it. A absolutely. I'm so glad you, you picked up on the on the Cotton Mather. As, as you say, he he's getting it from Mather's Bonifacius, an essay to do good. Yeah. And Franklin is feeling a little abashed because he'd made fun of Cotton mm -hmm. Mather as an overconfident kid and yeah. basically found that same question that stopped me up when I was studying Puritanism. How, how is it possible, according to the Puritans, uh, you can only have justification or salvation by faith, not good mm -hmm. works. And that means no matter how much virtue you do in this world, God yeah. chooses to send you to heaven or hell before you're born, uh, basically yeah. random. And then the question is, why then should you bother to be virtuous? And, and Cotton Mather's solution, which was that um, good works were a sign of justification, mm -hmm. not a cause, wasn't very convincing to Franklin or anyone else. That basically, if you did good works, that was a kind of good evidence that you'd already been picked for heaven. Yeah. So, so, so Franklin was led to um, explore uh, well, briefly the atheism, actually, when... Yeah. when he um, read a book by uh, Wollaston, William Wollaston, the, the, mm -hmm. the English preacher who wrote The Religion of Nature. Uh, yes. Wollaston essentially had, a, had a, said, you don't need revelation to do good because um, doing good just consists in following truth, and that can be accessible by reason. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, for, for Wollaston, reason and revelation were compatible, and, and, and any thinking person could choose to follow uh, either uh, empirical or, or yeah. religious truths. Franklin briefly is unconvinced with that. He has he has doubts about providence and um, and and mm -hmm. eternal life. But then he repents and he uh, attaches himself to one of Wollaston's major acolytes uh, in the in in America, Samuel Johnson, not the British right. dictionary writer, but another guy named Samuel Johnson. Samuel Johnson writes the first moral philosophy textbook in America that, that Franklin wants to put at the center of the new curriculum of the University of Pennsylvania, which he's founded. Franklin mm -hmm. has printed this book of moral philosophy, and the book uh, uses the same phrase that Wollaston did, 
the pursuit of happiness. And wow. both Wollaston and Samuel Johnson define what they say, quote, the pursuit of happiness as conforming our thoughts and actions to truth and reason. Um, so that I, I took a while to explain all that, but you, you kind of follow the footnotes. Yeah. You see that for um, the standard moral philosophy textbook of the of the, of the 18th century, which 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 Franklin endorses, um, reason and revelation are not inconsistent, and and um, anyone who follows right reason can align with the divine laws of the universe. And in a sense, that that's back to the Stoic wisdom. That that really is right. Aristotle and the Stoics as well. That that. God is reason, is which is mm -hmm. uh, truth, and that all are accessible to our reasoning minds um, if we uh, take the time to discern them. So that yes. is um, that was Franklin's journey. Fascinating. Now uh, we're talking with Jeff Rosen from the National Constitution Center. We're talking about your forthcoming book. I think it's your at least your eighth book. I think you've written about Justice Brandeis. You have conversations with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You've written a book on the courts, uh, the most democratic branch, a number of other books. So this is really delving into an area, the 18th century, which you have so far left a little bit unexplored in your writings. Well, happy to see you getting there. And I'm really wondering, is this Samuel Johnson the same one who is at the convention or is it yet another Samuel Johnson? It is a different one. He was okay. not at the convention. Um, uh, he, he, he was an American educator. Right, French. okay, yeah. okay. So, um, so this phrase, the pursuit of happiness, is everywhere you're finding it. And it's not in Locke, you know, Locke's formula is life, liberty, and property, or the pursuit of property. So how is that, how do we make that change? It is, it is in Locke, it's just not in the second treatise. It's in oh, the okay. Concerning Human Understanding. Oh, okay. In, in Locke's essay, it's called On Power, right. uh, book two, chapter uh 51 about how to um, uh, resist immediate pleasures for long-term um, interest. And in, amazingly, Samuel, the, the British Samuel Johnson, the famous one, quotes the same Locke passage um, that contains the phrase, the pursuit of happiness in Johnson's definition of happiness. So it's this was hiding in plain sight. Now Locke, as you say, famously used life, liberty, and property in the second treatise. Why did yes. he switch it out? Um, a simple reason, because property, unlike happiness, is an alienable natural right. Remember that um, right. in this nature, we have unalienable and alienable right. rights. When we move to form governments, we alienate or surrender to government certain rights in order to get greater security and safety of the rights we've retained. Obviously, property is alienable because you can trade it and exchange it and regulate it in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. So, So property is an alienable right, but ha but the pursuit of happiness, like the rights of conscience, are unalienable rights because they're rooted in our reason. And I right. can't alienate to you the power mm -hmm. to control my thoughts, that's the right, right. of conscience, or to prevent me from my fulfilling my duty industriously mm -hmm. to improve mm -hmm. my character by cultivating my mm -hmm. reason. That's the pursuit of happiness. Because my reason is unalienable. It's inherent to who I am as a sentient being. It, I'm, my reason is hardwired in the in yeah. life view. So that was the that that's the explanation. He was he was being technically precise, and he was mm -hmm. sticking to a phrase that Bach used elsewhere. So it's not like it was a significant substantive no. change. It was a technical change. Yeah. And 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 later, um, Jefferson in his uh, first inaugural, and the Supreme Court in its decisions 
talking about the pursuit of happiness, used it as a synonym for the industrious following of the occupations of ordinary life. That basically right. we can engage in all lawful pursuits right. of industry in order to cultivate our faculties mm -hmm. of reason and uh, pursue happiness. Um, Jefferson doesn't use a phrase that's in the Virginia Bill of Rights by George Mason, which he has as, at his side and which sounds a mm -hmm. lot like the first paragraph of the Declaration. Mason talks about the unalienable right to pursue and obtain happiness and safety. And Jefferson, right. following the classical understanding, has the sense that happiness is never anything that we entirely obtain because it's uh, the, the the whole quest is in the pursuit. It's that's right. Each day we have to keep renewing our commitment to cultivate our faculties of reason. There's no there's no ending uh, point. Right. Okay. So let me ask Jeff, since you are, you know, the Constitution Center does deal with the framework of a government, then what is the role of the state? Can the state coerce people to pursue happiness or become virtuous? Crucial question. Um, there's a deep connection between what the framers called the pursuit of private and public happiness. For the framers, personal self-government is necessary for political self-government. Mm -hmm. In other words, the Republican experiment will not succeed unless citizens find the virtuous self-mastery to uh, con con constrain themselves. And that's why in the Federalist Papers, again and again, you see the phrase public happiness coming up and Madison talking about using our powers of reason to restrain our unreasonable passions. All of a sudden, the frame, we understand that the framers believe you have to achieve the same harmony in the state that people have a duty to achieve in their own minds mm -hmm. and both require self-mastery. Now, can the government coerce virtue? Adams thought so. He endorsed sumptuary laws, which was right. the Roman laws that uh, you pro prohibited you from spending luxuriously or the, the mm -hmm. modern equivalent would be S Sunday laws that didn't let you buy alcohol on mm -hmm. Sundays. And, and Adam said the mere mention of these sumptuary laws that basically coerce public virtue will bring a smile because they seem so antiquated to people, but he, he thought they were necessary for mm -hmm. virtue. Um, others disagreed. Jefferson, the great libertarian, yeah. thought that uh, the illimitable freedom of the human mind meant that people had to be free to uh, pursue happiness and virtue or not, depending mm -hmm. on the dictates of their conscience. And this, of course, also tied into debates about the scope of religious freedom. Uh, right. So I think that was the debate, but none of them, although they might have disagreed about how activist the state could be in, in coercing virtue, none disagreed that citizens had to find that self-mastery mm -hmm. in themselves yeah. in order for the whole thing to work. Yeah, there's that wonderful rhetorical question in Jefferson's inaugural about something that man is not capable of governing himself. Can he then be trusted with the government of others? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly the phrase. And that sums that sums up their, their their ideas about the connection between public and private happiness. I was really struck by how central the notion of the pursuit of happiness was throughout American history and how it evolved in surprising ways. So it starts in the you know the ancient literature and mm -hmm. then it's embodied in not only the Virginia Declaration of Rights, but James Wilson's uh, reflections on the extent of legislative authority, whose footnotes mm -hmm. are all to the classical sources. It um, shows up in the Federalist Papers about the mm -hmm. promotion of public happiness. It's embraced by John Quincy Adams in mm -hmm. his speeches denouncing the gag rule. Frederick right. Douglass praises Quincy Adams as the example of what he defines as the pursuit of happiness, self-reliance. And Douglass, yes. um, in channeling Quincy, mm -hmm. used industry and self-reliance 
as the definition of the pursuit of happiness. Then Tocqueville, in his famous definition of self-interest properly understood, is talking about the classical wisdom that it's only through self-mastery, through either virtue or what he calls the spirit of religion, that we can achieve the self-control necessary to rightly perceive our long-term self-interest rather than our short-term pleasure. And then it, uh, you know, continues in the McGuffey reader and, and oh, and then the philosophy of Emerson, of course, em Emerson's oh, yeah. great idea of the, of the, of the uh, oversoul, which is uniting explicitly the, the Indian traditions mm -hmm. and the Bhagavad Gita with the Western ones is deeply rooted in, 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 in the classics as well. Um, and, and then it just falls, falls out in the 1950s, but that, that unbroken mm -hmm. line from uh, Cicero all the way up through yeah. Tocqueville and Emerson is, is really striking. It's fascinating. So um, why do you suppose it falls out in the 1950s? I know we talked a little bit about this, and this is probably a subject of another book or another discussion. It is a, definitely another book, and it won't, I'm, I'm not going to write it. And I don't have a, a confident answer. There's a, there's a good book by James Davidson Hunter called The Death of Character that mm -hmm. talks about the rise of critical theory in the the academy that, that questions the enlightenment faith in mm -hmm. reason uh and um the of course this the this those cultural and sexual revolutions of the right. 60s a, a, an increasing uh um constraint an appropriate constraint about the role of the of religion in public life and supreme court decisions saying mm -hmm. you can't teach texts that are explicitly right. religious although they went out of their way to say you could uh, teach it as part of a, mm -hmm. a civilization course. Um, the, the, these are partial descriptions. We 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 know the bottom line that that by the seventies, happiness had been redefined into pleasure seeking. Yeah. But why yes. exactly that is will be the subject of of other of other right. scholars. Do you, do you have any ideas? Well, um, similar to what you were thinking, I think it is um, a fear of teaching these religious ideas, but on the other hand, you pointed out Cicero is coming up with these. That is, in, in other eras, people of different religious traditions or none have seen the same thing. I remember when what Franklin said, it's a wonder to him why bad people don't adopt the virtuous life because there's so much advantage to be gained by it. And it's, um, yeah, so, I don't know, I suppose it is something we could talk about offline, too, with, rather than we sound like a couple of old men complaining about oh. the way the world has gone. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Although, the, remember, this was old. This was gone when I was in college. So I am. I'm getting. I am getting on. But, but it's been. It's been out of the curriculum for a long time. It has. It has. So, well, thank you for rediscovering it. And again, I should have mentioned that you, after you got your undergraduate degree at Harvard, you spent a year or so at Oxford as a Marshall Fellow, and then um, a law degree from Yale. So it's a. And you've been. You are a, are still a professor of law at George Washington University. I am. And these are such wonderful schools. I was so privileged to go there. I had the most astonishing teachers. And I want to give a shout out because this is a good Massachusetts podcast to these great teachers of the humanities. Walter Jackson Bate, the great scholar of Samuel Johnson, Bernard Balin, the American historian, Sack Van Berkovich on the Puritans, Judith oh, yeah. Starr on the political theorists. Oh, these, yeah. these were uh, what, what, a, what an extraordinary privilege to study with these marvelous teachers and great minds. Despite all that, we, we just didn't do the moral philosophy because it wasn't considered significant. But I'm so grateful to all of them for having set me down this path of reading and discovery that, that led to this great project and enriches me every day. That's great. That's great. Well, they, they would be proud, I know.
well, pride is not, it's not one of the virtues. It's not something we avoid. So Franklin says he would be proud of you, his humility if you were to achieve it. Anyway, we've been talking with Jeff Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center and author of the forthcoming Pursuit of Happiness, which is a good thing. This has been a great discussion of it. I look forward to reading it and uh, thinking more about the moral virtues and how they are integral to the pursuit of happiness, which the Declaration speaks about and the Constitution allows us to achieve. So thanks, thanks so much for joining us, Jeff. Thank you for a great conversation. And I want to thank our many listeners out there. You know, as you said, this is a Massachusetts thing, but we have listeners actually all over the world in 2,500 cities and 84 different countries who have tuned in. And so this week, I want to thank our friends in South Boston, Massachusetts, and in Burnham, which is in Somerset, and Bristol, which is in um, England, and Castle Rock, Colorado, and Florence and Easley in South Carolina. And if you're one of these places and you want to get one of our Rev250 lapel pins, send Jonathan Lane an email, jlane at revolution250.org. And I thank you all for joining us and everyone in places in between and beyond. And now we will be piped out on the road to Boston.